Thanks for tuning in. You are now listening to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast with your host, Ken Cairns, a weekly sports card podcast with lessons he's learned in the hobby and life lessons he's learned along the way. So sit back and relax. There won't be a test. The only thing being graded is the cards. You are now on with Ken. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Sports Card Lessons Podcast. With me, your host, Ken. I'm a retired teacher documenting my hobby journey here on the pod, finding teachable moments to share with all of you along the way. Don't forget to hit me up on Instagram at sportscard underscore lessons. Hit the follow button and you can watch these episodes on the Sports Card Lessons YouTube channel. Welcome, everyone. How is everyone doing? If you're watching on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button, smash the like button, leave some feedback. I'm really excited for today's interview. You've heard me talk about him on a number of earlier episodes, setting up next to him at the last shows, at the Autograph Fest. He is a high-end dealer with a single case full of absolute fire. Welcome, Nick Velakis on Instagram at The Slap Exchange. Nick, how's it going? How's it going, Ken? Doing I wish well, I could say it's well. been uh I wish I could say it's been a while that I hadn't seen you, but I only saw you two days ago. So <laughs> yeah. that was short lived. Yeah, yeah. But it was a good day. Right? It was a great day. It was it was great, great to see to consistency. Go. Yeah. So Nick, just let's just start out. Tell uh just tell the listeners uh who you are, how you got started in the hobby. Yeah. So uh I I'm Nick. I started the Slab Exchange a, a couple of years ago. Uh, I initially intended it to be a trading third-party trading platform, but uh, due to my schedule and uh, everything going on at the time, I was uh, unable to get it off the ground. So everybody knew me by that uh, alias. So I just maintained it and uh, went forth with it. But in regards to collecting, I started as a toddler, uh, just as most people. Uh, when I got to the level of uh, middle school, I discovered uh, women and collection, uh, collecting, uh, went to the wayside for a period of time. And then, uh, rewind to maybe two and a half, three years ago, I caught the bug just like everybody else did, uh, right before COVID and, uh, entered back into collectibles world. Um, at that time it was a, a game of catch up. I was introduced to, uh, Rick Probstein who took me under his wing and, uh, reintroduced me to the world and caught me up. And I uh, basically hit the ground running. You know, I started just like everybody else did, tried buying some wax, uh, whether it was hobby, retail, uh, base cards, uh, singles. And then I learned very quickly that was uh, the wrong move, you know, and I, I quickly adapted, pivoted and uh, got into more of the higher end collecting spectrum. And yeah, and uh, the rest is kind of history. I've kind of maintained that. Uh, what do you say that uh, same level for till current day? So here we are. So, you know, it's funny when I first met you, you talked about, yeah, my real estate business. And I was, I always thought Nick's into real estate. And then, you know, you did a lot of stuff with Rick Probstein and I said, oh, you know, maybe he works for him too. And then it was, I don't know how many shows ago it was a while ago, you know, maybe last spring. And you're like, no, 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 I'm a police officer. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I mean, what is it that you don't do, right? I mean, I had no idea that you were doing all these things and the cards, right, as yeah. well. So so it must have been, I mean, being a police officer, doing stuff with, with real estate, 
and then getting into the cards too. I mean, you, you must have not had any other room on your plate to do anything. <laughs> Uh, my plate has been definitely full, especially over like the last five to seven years. Uh, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be a police officer for the last 10 years. Um, kind of showing my age a little bit, but uh, approximately seven years ago, I got into the world of real estate and investment side of things, and I became obsessed with it and uh, became my passion. Uh, during that time, when COVID approached, uh, I had pending projects and there was a lot of uncertainty at the time. So uh, just like everybody else, I hesitated and held back, held on to my money. And then uh, you saw the big surge with collectibles and sports cards. And while everything else was put on hold in my life, I was able to turn to sports cards and uh, memorabilia to kind of, I guess, appease me for a time and, uh, to, I guess, place my money for investment purposes. Uh, but to me, it wasn't just an investment. It was something nostalgic. You know, uh, like I, I've told you and Rob before, uh, it's just us now. We were little kids. It's nostalgic. We're growing up now. We're just big kids with more money collecting cards. And, and uh, the fact that we can make money while doing it is just a cherry on top. Whether I was making money or not, uh, I'm here for the long haul. I'm not going anywhere. I love it. And that seems to be the sentiment, too, amongst people in the hobby, you know, especially dealers at the hobby, you know, when the when the. Uh, you know, the market corrected and things have been down a little bit, you know, people diehards are like, you know, I'm just going to adjust. I'm going to adjust with the market and keep going where people, you know, have really gotten out of the market. Right. I mean, you right. see, you probably, I know a handful of people, I'm sure you must know, a, uh, you know, a number of people who kind of jumped into the, 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 the hobby at the same time you did and, and jumped back out. But it's, it's interesting that you talk about it was as an investment. Right. So it, it just, just take a, take a s step back when you were talking about being in real estate and holding on and then coming into it as an investment. And the reason I say that, because when I look into your case and you're right next to me, right, at all these shows, I mean, I, you can you can say, you know, I, I have to say you probably have a half a million or more, yeah. you know, sitting in that case. So probably when you look around, you know, at any show. I mean, these, these shows that we're doing with Laz, there may be, you know, less than, less than five people that have a case like yours at these shows, right? So as an investment purposes, when you were buying these cards in your mind, was it that I'm buying this as an investment, like somebody would buy stock or, or real estate, um, or when you jumped into it, was it more nostalgia saying, I love this card yet quote unquote it's an investment but like i'm just a big kid now you know right yeah am i am i asking you that the right way you are I, I completely understand what you're saying so for me i'm not gonna lie to you i initially jumped into it for the investment purpose because now all the money i was placing into real estate was just sitting there and not doing anything and not doing anything for me for that matter uh so i i was the initial attention to use it as an investment once i got into it and i got up to speed, I then kind of recaught the bug that I had when I was younger. And I, I remember why I loved it. And it was just cool to have that same feeling just with new players. You can still collect the old players and you come across cards that you collected in your childhood, which really hit home. But also you got to learn about the new players and the new products like Panini and, and Prism wasn't a thing when I was younger. So it was definitely uh, 
an adjustment. I was used to Topps Chrome, uh, Skybox, and and all those. Like I, I love the '90s inserts myself. That's one of my uh, my favorite things to collect. But uh, yeah, catching up with Prism Select, all those products was just new to me, and I was just like, wow. I was like, Topps doesn't own the market anymore. Like it, it was it was a shocker, it was a culture shock to me. But then, uh, like again, I just adapted, learned what there was to learn and, uh, get, got acclimated pretty quickly. And I think it's, I think it's there, there's a generation there of people all that are about your age that, that kind of grew up with that and jumped back into the, into the hobby. I think the, the majority of people who jumped into the hobby were in this, that you like your generation, um, and then younger, right. The people that came in, like these younger kids that all of a sudden realized like, there's really nothing else going on, but I see all these people making a ton of money or a boatload of money on these cards. So I'm right. just going to jump into doing cards versus, you know, people who are actually, you know, adulting, right? right. Like, like you, like me. I mean, when I, when I jumped into the hobby, um, I had my investments. I'm still investing. I'm still making investments, but I don't see, even though I'm a dealer, I don't see it as a, as investments for me. I just see it more of, you know, a business slash I'm having fun doing it. Right. right. So, so if, if, if things didn't go well in the hobby, it's, uh, I'm not losing sleep at night because I've got all my other investments. So, so for you, when you talk about investments, is this, is this something that you're relying on like a stock or, or a piece of real estate, or is this something that even though it's an investment, it's, 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 it's still a business and I'm still having fun doing it. Right. It, it would be more so the latter, you know, uh, I quickly uh, came to realization, especially with the, the economy being the way it is and the uncertainty in the hobby, uh, whether my cards are worth X amount, like, uh, few thousand dollars or they're worth maybe 10, you know, uh, I'm, I'm okay with it. I, at the end of the day, I went back to my collector ways and that's, that's what I see myself as I entered the hobby as an investor came out a collector once again, you know, and I, I'm yeah. perfectly fine with that. I, I hear Rob saying all the time. He's like, Hey, that's why uh, you collect what you like. Cause whether these things are worth hundreds or thousands of dollars or worth zero, would you be satisfied holding on to them? Mm. So, and I, I, truly do collect what I like. And if, if I am stuck with him for whatever reason, or something happens with the market and it crashes, I'm perfectly fine. Nice. So, so changing direction just a little bit. And, and we were talking this weekend uh, and you're, you talk about going to the Dallas show, the Chicago show, uh, the Burbank show, um, the mint collective in Las Vegas, all these different shows. Um, how do they differ? And if you could just talk about, cause I, I, you know, I mean, I've been to national and I've been to these shows here, but I haven't traveled yet. And we've just talked about doing some traveling in the next, you know, six to eight months to some of these shows, but at these bigger shows, um, how does it differ setting up at say a Laz show here, here in New Jersey? Well, Laz is more of a the local type show. And, uh, for me, like the way I'll put it is once you start traveling for, for bigger shows, like more national shows, uh, you're reluctant to do local shows, except for Laz. Laz is the one exception. Like you have the Garfield show, you have Woodbridge, you have a bunch of different shows. But 
once once you cross a certain threshold, you'll only do certain shows, and you have to be selective because remember, traveling for shows or doing multiple shows in your uh, local uh, local state gets starts getting expensive. Hundred dollars there, three hundred dollars there. Um, you you really got to pick and choose where where you want to plant your seeds, and uh, that's what I mean with with the bigger shows. There's not as many of them, uh, but uh, they're all. How do I put it? They're they're a little more spaced out. Like for instance, the Dallas shows six times a year now. I think you, then you have obviously the Nationals annual. Uh, you have the Mint Collective, which is also annual. Uh, what am I missing? You have the Chicago Spectacular. I think that's about once every six months or quarterly. Um, yeah, and then Burbank. Burbank's a a big hitter that just came into uh, the card show industry, and they're making a big splash. So I missed the first one. I won't miss the second one. Um, and I'm thoroughly looking forward to it. Um, just reference your question one more time. Um, you know, just just like when when you're you're set up at these shows, and and you've got obviously a big case, you know, yeah. lots of big cards in your case. Um, as far as sales, so so I'm just going to take a step back. I talked in earlier episodes about being set up next to you and saying. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy's doing it right. Like here I am. I'm setting up wax. I've got boxes. I've got these. This case. That case. Hey, it's so many things going on at my table. And then Nick shows up with one case. He puts it out <laughs> and he says, well, "You looked at me and said, if you need some more room, you can use some of my table." Like you look at me like I was crazy with all the stuff I had on my table. Right? You put one case out. What you know the cards out, and you said to me, "If I sell one card, I'm you know I'm I'm good." But yeah. If I don't, I'm good too. Maybe I might buy a card. I don't know. So you were just so casual about it. And I'm like, so here's a guy that shows up with a sandwich and a coffee and, and you know, he puts his cards in and that was it. I mean, you just sat back and waited for people to come to you. I thought, man, I, I need to start being more like Nick here. I need to meet, start being more, you know, with, with just being more simple, you right. know, like designating a lane and being simple. But I think at these shows, these local shows, that may not work work as well as some of the bigger shows. So I'd have to right. imagine, you know, you taking this case to a show like like Dallas or a bigger show that there's a lot more there's a lot more transactions happening at your table. Right, uh, that is true. Um, but when I when I do local shows, it's more so I look at it from a consumer standpoint. Right, when somebody's coming to a show and it's in their local area, uh, it, it's usually typically on a weekend. People are not working. They have either themselves or their child with them. And they're like, hey, let's just stop by. We're opposed to uh, international show or, or not international, I'm sorry, national show. Uh, people are actually going out of their way to book tickets to travel to with the intention to transact. So that's why you typically see a higher volume of transactions happen, uh, typically at a higher dollar value too, whether it's a trade, trade cash or just trade cash. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the dealer standpoint, yeah, uh, for me, I do local sh- shows just out of uh, sheer pleasure. You know, whether I sell a card or I don't sell a card, I don't put too much stress or pressure on to, uh, to make a sale. You know, for me, at the end of the day, uh, I could spend the Saturday morning and early afternoon at Laz's show just talking cards and uh, being able to network. That That's worth its weight in gold to me. You know, I, I don't need to always uh, press a, a transaction or try to press for a sale because then uh, then it'll remind me of when I used to go to car shows when I was younger, where you had a lot of the old timers and they're just trying to, uh, basically be like a car salesman to you. And if you didn't buy anything from them, they didn't want anything to do with you. You know, I, I don't want to have that experience. Uh, 
mm-hmm. to uh, the new generation. I want people to enjoy coming to shows, whether they buy anything or they don't. So in your case, and I know in my case, when I go to shows, I have at least one or two cards that I really don't want to sell that I put in there. But I'm like, you know, the the price has got to be so right for me to sell this card. So Mm -hmm. in your case, what cards are those? Okay. Uh, Let me, uh, I I put them aside. I kind of knew that might be coming. So (laughs) let me just pull these out. Now, is this is this Nick's PC or is this just, you know, Nick's favorite cards? Uh, I would. Uh, it's my current cards in my collection, current favorite cards in my collection. Uh, PC stuff. Uh, I like to collect Dan Marino, Kobe Bryant. Um, in regards to having cards in my collection in general, uh, I like to collect the, the greats, you know, the goats like the uh, Mike Trout's of the world, the Lionel Messi's. Um, Tom Brady's, you know, I am a Dolphin fan, but Tom Brady is Tom Brady, unfortunately. But thankfully, he's no longer my division. Um, where's my other card? Okay. So, just pulling out a few. Oh, here we go. Okay. All right, I'll start off with this one. This is probably uh, the biggest card of my collection currently. Uh, it is... A BGS 10 2011 rookie year Mike Trout from Top's Finest uh, with an on card auto color match number to 25. And that's a 10 10. 10 10. It's a very, very special card. Um, very aesthetically pleasing. Uh, obviously, a pop one. But uh, a fun fact for that card, what a lot of people don't realize, and uh, one was brought to my attention maybe a couple months back. Uh, everybody's familiar with Mike Trout's Bowman Chrome. Uh, card that he signed. He signed a bunch of them, many different parallels. But in regards to his rookie year, uh, from what I was told, this is the only set that he autographed his rookie year of 2011, which uh, definitely made the card more valuable in my eyes. Hmm. Um, Following that card is a card that I've been trying to track down for about a year and a half. I am a big Patrick Mahomes believer. And uh, I don't think it gets as good as this card outside of uh, his RPAs, but it's a 2017, I don't know, it's a little glare, 2017 Optic Hollow uh, yeah. autograph. My favorite card in 16. your case. I was calculating my cards, like, what what, what could I what could I move to buy that card? This yeah, year? I was checking so that card. This, this, this is a card that definitely tr- holds true to me, and uh, one I'm very reluctant to let go. Um, I only have two more uh i told you at pc dan marino uh this is card i recently got it's a uh, ultimate collection pop one psa 10 beautiful uh aesthetically pleasing card as well uh one that i don't will stay in my pc I, I don't foresee me ever selling it yeah i didn't see that in your case this weekend did i i, I popped it in and out because there was a couple dolphin fans so i i yeah I, sh- I played a little show and tell but yeah yeah that's uh one i'd like to keep private uh, as well as this one right here. It's uh, it's not a card, but it's a badge slash ticket of Tiger Woods' first uh, Masters and first major win. Uh, you see these pop up every once in a while. I would love to get my hands on one that Tiger Woods has autographed himself, but uh, those are not as easy to come by as this one. So oh, nice. this is definitely a nice conversation piece. Yeah. But th- those are probably some of my favorites currently. Yeah. 
I thought the uh, the what was the soccer card you had that was all the rage this weekend? I oh, thought that was going to come up. God, soccer. Well, I have. I I basically put them in trios. So, uh, the one pair is another uh, very attractive card. Is the red prism Ronaldo from 2014 World Cup prism? We are in World Cup season, yep. along with the silver. Uh, of his, which is very low pop. People fail to remember that uh, silvers were once a true parallel and they weren't overprinted like they were post-2019. Uh, the Messi is also and there it part is. of that set. Yep. <laughs> the big card. The popular popular card. This weekend. Yep. Uh, every, everybody loves Messi. Uh, <laughs> Ronaldo is having a little uh, tough time at Manchester United, which uh, reflected on his market, but hopefully he could bring his market back up via the World Cup and kind of shut up all his doubters yeah. and show what kind of player he truly is outside of the, the political game. Um, but yeah, that, that set is a very prominent set. I think it's severely undervalued. You see a lot of the cases and a lot of the hobby boxes go for quite a bit of money. And uh, I know Golden Auctions has a World Cup, a solely a sole World Cup auction coming up. And uh, they have a lot of cards from that set. Mm -hmm. Very undervalued set, uh, very low in pop. If you get your hands on one, I'd suggest it, you know, uh, even f not only for the short term, for the long term. I think it's a great hold. So soccer seems to be one of those markets that, you know, when something's happening, you know, in the sport that the cards are up. But as soon as nothing's happening, the card seems to drop down. Um, do you think that's going to change after World Cup? Do you think soccer may start holding higher value for a longer time? Or do you think it's still going to kind of be roller coaster up and down i i hope it does um what i kind of reference back to is right before the euro cup last year obviously due to COVID, it kind of messed up the uh um uh, the cycle of rotation from the euro cup and world cup uh typically they're two years apart but this year they were back to back if you look at the sales and the analytics from uh euro cup of last year there was a, a massive surge in soccer cards in regards to prices uh, leading up to the World Cup, and then it became performance-based through. Uh, this year for the World Cup, I was expecting something similar, uh, but obviously the economy as a whole uh, was not stable enough to, uh, I guess, uh, uphold that same uh, trend. Mm. So it, it was a slight uptick, but not massive. Uh, but I do think this year's World Cup will be heavily performance-based. I think if uh, you see some of the great players do well, uh, you'll see a significant surge in their prices. Mm -hmm. uh, Messi and Ronaldo being those two, they are set up uh, in the right brackets to if they succeed, they could possibly face each other. Yeah. So that would be epic. And it's like that with any card, right? I mean, I even I remember this weekend, right? Tua, Jalen Hurts. I mean, these are two guys that are playing well in the NFL. These are the two. These are the two guys people were looking for, like at the show. So yeah, it's going to be like that with right. any of these games. If somebody really pops off during during a game, or you know plays really well. I mean, I think, I think that instantly the, the, the prices are going to rise on that. Right. Yeah. And I know people who are, you know, buying these world, uh, the, the prism soccer boxes, right. The world cup and all the cards are raw. Cause nobody wants to take a chance of sending them off to PSA, you know, and not have them back. You know? Right. So, exactly. It's a yeah. definitely a timing issue. Yeah. All right. Switch lanes again. Let's talk about uh state of the hobby. What do you, what, what's your opinion of the state of the hobby? I'm definitely optimistic. Uh, it's no secret that everything's down right now. Um, 
I didn't get to go to the Chicago show this past weekend, but uh, I talked to a few buddies that actually went and set up there and they said it was very busy and there was a lot of um, transactions happening and money flying around. So that for one uh, made a lot of people feel very, uh, feel well. Um, going forward, uh, the reason why I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel when a lot of people feel like there's no hope is uh, this past Friday, there was a documentary released. Uh, it's called, I think it was called Behind the Card. Behind the Card. It was, uh, very well done. Um, I think that's just the start of many things to start bringing the hobby mainstream. I think next up is uh, the Golden Auctions uh, reality show on Netflix. Uh, I think it's produced or going to be promoted by the same makers of Pawn Stars. So we all saw what, uh, how Pawn Stars turned out, and I think uh, it will do very well. Um, uh, in regards to Golden, Golden is very prominent in the hobby. Uh, now with Netflix, uh, we saw what it did for F1 and how prominent made it in pop culture and, and mainstream media. Uh, I think it has it will have a similar effect for the card industry. Mm. Um, after that, we have Adam Sandler. Uh, he's in production with a movie that uh, I think will bring a lot of light, uh, comedic light, but light to uh, the industry as well. So. With all these things coming up, I, I think people can no longer shy away and turn a blind eye to what's going on. You know, um, I think and I, I had this talk with you over the weekend that when the initial boom happened, you had investors, uh, you call them Wills, uh, for instance, that actually pivoted and entered the hobby and brought a lot of money into it. And there was other investors, big time investors that heard about it, but didn't uh, decide to make that same turn. Uh, but now if it's going to be in the mainstream and uh, it's going to be involved with pop culture at that point, uh, you'll see a lot more new, uh, a lot more people enter the hobby mm-hmm. and uh, as well as new money, uh, which only puts yeah, really, of course there, there was a lot of new money that came in during, you know, just before the pandemic and during the pandemic. Uh, and I talked about a few episodes ago, like I was one of those people bringing in the money, you yep. know, and, and, and I know the money I brought in. You know, if 100,000 other people or 200,000 or 500,000, you know, you start calculating. That was a lot of new money that came into the hobby, yeah. you know, and 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 uh, it's interesting to see how many people stayed and how many people left and how many people who left will come back that maybe just are taking a break right now just to right. just to see where the hobby goes, because I think um I think from where the hobby was to where it went to and where it is now, it's going to keep it much more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Uh, even even this weekend, we had at, at Laz's show. I mean, the traffic. We had a lot of traffic at that show, and and we always do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you always do, and you know. S- some people, you heard some people saying, you know, a lot of traffic, not a not a lot of sales, but. Um, I think if you had things priced correctly and and it was what people were looking for, they were willing to buy. I mean, I did zero trades. I did all all cash sales this weekend. Right. Um, and I did have a lot of people come to my table with cards that, you know, I, I'm being v- much more selective of what I'm buying, you know, I because I, I kind of know what's selling. I'm, I'm in the hobby long enough and I'm researching every day. I, you know, I know... I know where the sales are. I know who is selling and what is selling. And those are the cards I'm trying to get into. Uh, and I'm sure by looking at your case, you, you, that's exactly what you do. 
right? I, you know, as far as because you don't have how many cards are in your case? If I, uh, I typically I, I, any show I go to, I, I won't fill up more than two showcases. Uh, for like a more local show, I, I'll try to keep it to one, maybe anywhere from 25 to 30 cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe like a big piece, like I had a Jordan type one photo along with me that uh, I value pretty greatly. Um, it was such a good show piece to bring out and uh, have people take a look at because it was from one of his iconic moments. But most of the time I, I travel light, I I'll bring anything to fill up one or two showcases. Mm-hmm. So when you travel down to Dallas or out to another show, um, same thing, one case, two cases? Two, uh, typically the bigger shows, I'll, I'll try to fill up two showcases, uh, yeah. anywhere from like like around 50 cards. Yeah. And and the difference of the additional cards that you put in those cases, higher end, lower end, uh, compared to what you put out, do you just bring your selective top end cards when you go to the local show? or With, with the local shows, you're able to, to bring... Uh, some things that are a little more lower end, like that are worth a few hundred dollars or maybe like a thousand or 2000, as opposed to when you go to the bigger shows, you want to bring out your big guns. You want to, cause you never know who you're going to run to, especially with people traveling across the country to that one location. Hey, if you have a Steph Curry card and somebody came from uh, uh, all the way in California, guess what? The more than likely they'll be interested in that card. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get people from all over the place rather than, uh, us being in New York, New Jersey area, and you're, you're going to see very uh, prominent fan base of the Jets, Giants, Knicks, mm-hmm. Rangers. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you, you could try to kind of assume what people are going to want in the area. When you go to the, the more uh, the national shows, that you can get a, a mosh posh of many different yeah. collectors. So when I go to Dallas, uh, I bring my uh, Emmett Smith 101 card on card auto that that should be a big seller there in dallas <laughs> that won't last long over there trust me they, they love their cowboys they make yeah. that very known yeah so real quick before we finish up i know we were talking over the weekend about the uh the golden auction and i know you wanted to discuss that a little bit how 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 you feel that will help the hobby the golden auction show or the Oh, you mean the uh, Lucas sale? The Lucas sale. Oh, Lucas sale from PWCC. Okay. Um, oh, is oh okay. PWCC. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So with the Lucas sale, there was there's a lot of uh, back and forth whether that sale was good or bad for the hobby. Um, I see it as as a great thing, you know, because I, I do feel uh, even aside from that sale, we've reached a new floor in the hobby, right? I don't think we're ever going to see pre-pandemic prices uh, in, in regards to the the, like the rare cards or the most cards that are desirable. But uh, I think the Lucas sale reflects that because if people could uh, recall when the boom happened, I felt the Luca card was the, was the leader of that boom. It led the charge, you know, that well, that sale happened and it was all over media outlets, news channels, newspapers. Uh, and it, it definitely brought a lot of attention to the hobby at hand. Um, knowing that the economy is down, uh, people don't know how much it's down. People hear a recession quite a bit. So when that card sold for just over $3 million, I I talked to people prior to that sale and they expected it to go from anywhere one to 1.5. So to double that expectation uh, was definitely uh, something that I think allows us to realize, hey, we're leveling off here. I don't think we're going to keep declining per se. You know, I think we're uh, at a stable floor uh, and I think it'll only go up from here. 
Mm. I could be wrong. I'm not Nostradamus, but uh, <laughs> I'm definitely optimistic about this hobby. And, and I do see a lot of good things happening. A lot of things happen behind the scene publicly and uh, at the card shows. You know, I think uh, the card show is a good indicator as to what people want, what people are going to be uh, expecting next and how excited people are for the upcoming uh, new year. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that it, it, you know, with, with the hobby now, you know, last year with football, you had all these rookie quarterbacks coming in and now this year the, the rookies aren't so exciting with football. Um, do you think it's the hobby being down? Or do you think people are just, there's not enough chase to, to be chasing after, um, you know, wax to be chasing after breaks. Do you think it's because of the car, you know, the, the prospects coming out of, out of like, I now I know football, so I'm using football, but it may be the same for, you know, basketball and baseball too. I don't know. Right. Uh, but I, I know, I know that the, uh, you know, the breaks are down and the, and the wax sales are down. You know, you, I go to, you go to, you know, the retail wax you see at any retail store, the shelves are full of wax now. Right. Um, you see online that these prices are dropping tremendously on the hobby boxes that are starting out at four or five hundred dollars, and now they're down under three hundred. They're in the twos, you know. Right. Um, what What are your thoughts on that? I do feel the draft classes and uh, prospects matter. Uh, we were fortunate enough to it, back in twenty twenty to have a phenomenal quarterback draft class, and just in regards to football, uh, with uh, Herbert Burrow, Tua, Hertz. Uh, we had a, a, like a, a surplus of, yeah. of prospects and quarterbacks. The year before that for basketball, we had John Morant and Zion and a few selected others. Uh, now, this year, in regards to football, I think uh, outside of the – I'm talking about the year, this upcoming year outside of uh, 2021 class with uh, Trevor Lawrence, I think that could be very uh, similar to 2020 depending on how they progress. But uh, Kenny Pickett's uh, – rookie year, I think it's similar to 2019 when Kyler Murray was coming out. Uh, he was pretty much the only prospect to go after in regards to quarterbacks. And uh, I don't think uh, anybody other than maybe for the Giants fans, Daniel, jo uh, Daniel Jones was also out of that class, but he didn't really progress until recently. Uh, so un un until somebody steps up from Kenny Pickett's draft class, I think he'll be the only prospect to chase. In regards to basketball, I know uh, the Kate Cunningham is a pretty popular prospect. Um, I don't think uh, we could compare him to, say, like a John Morant or anybody. So I don't think the hype is there for him. But uh, for next year, uh, we could possibly have Victor Wembanyama, which you're going to see uh, the hobby take a, a insane uh, spike w once their products come out. Because he's going to be, uh, from what a lot of people are saying, next uh, coming of LeBron or next uh, superstar prospect, who whatever uh, they want to label him as. But uh, he is definitely talent. I've watched. A lot of his uh, his games, I've watched his highlights. Uh, he's definitely a special player. I think it's going to cause a lot of excitement and pandemonium in the hobby when uh, those products start coming out. So it just comes in waves. You can't have a, a great, fantastic draft class every year, unfortunately. But uh, that's why you see a lot of people collect more so 2020, and they're after those cards as opposed to uh, the 2021 class. Yeah, um, it's, It offers them, hey, I, I've seen what this guy has done for the last two, three years. I feel comfortable investing my money in him as opposed to somebody just coming out of college. Yeah. And I think these guys, you know, especially with football, I think they need time. I do. I, You know, you look at people who really, you know, the, the quarterbacks who came to the NFL and, and spent the year 
you know, as a backup and, and learning before they started playing themselves, they played so much better than these quarterbacks that they're, they're pulling out of it and they're starting them all. I mean, all, every quarterback, you know, rookie quarterback from last year, the 2021 draft all started for their team at one point or another during the season last year. And, and I just, I just think it's overwhelming for them. I, I, I honestly don't think they give them, you know, that you put so much pressure on them and then you don't give them much of a chance to succeed out there. You know, we look at, you know, Patrick Mahomes and Josh Allen. These are guys that, you know, they, they sat behind somebody, you know, you, you know, even, um, when you look at any of the players in the NFL that get drafted, very few come out. You get a couple wide receivers, right? You get a couple um, linemen, things like that, that come fresh out of the draft that are starting for because of defensive players that are starting for their team. But there's really not a lot of pressure on those guys, right? They're not they're not the quarterback. They're not what everybody is watching. They're not what everybody's investing their money into. And I think that. Um, you know, we, we see Geno Smith how many years later, you know, now now he's playing well, right? Who who knows if, if, they, if he was given more opportunities, you know, early on, if he would have played that well or not. Right. Um, with, with quarterbacks, uh, there's a lot of pressure. Remember, they're also the, the face of their team, you know, and then uh, if they surpass expectations, they could possibly be the face of the league. There, there's always a lot of pressure as soon as they step in. We're accustomed to growing up watching football and seeing a team draft a quarterback, and and we're like, yeah, that's great. We'll see him in like two, three years, maybe four, depending on how uh, the veteran does, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we weren't accustomed until recently seeing uh, quarterbacks just being drafted and starting right away or starting within the first year. You know, it was very rare. Like, remember, if you go back to Steve Young sitting behind Joe Montana, um, well, uh, recently, more so Aaron Rodgers being behind Brett Favre for, I think, close to five years. Yep. You know, who, who knows what Aaron Rodgers could be on the, mm. the uh, statistical rankings if yeah. he uh, got to play those five years. Yeah. But Even Drew Brees. Remember, they, they used to make commercials that Drew, Bre Drew Brees being the backup. Right. right? Being, a, being a backup. Yeah. So. so, yeah, I'm saying you got to – I think it's a, it's a massive learning curve for yeah. uh, going from college to the NFL. You know, NFL has kind of – made it easier for the transition to happen, allowing uh, quarterbacks to be, to set up in sets that are more comfortable to them, like whether it's a pistol formation or a shotgun formation to give them a little extra uh, time to scan the defense and see what the defense is in, as opposed to being under center and then really watching the defense develop as he's dropping back. It's, and then uh, you also got to be in the right system. You know, how many times I look, Gino, Gino Smith, like you just said, is a prime example. He played for the Jets. He played for a couple of teams. He very well just wasn't in the right system. You know, Tua, Tua, Tua. His first two years, they changed offense coordinators on him. Learning NFL playbook is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. It's it's, it's a significant yeah. learning curve. And, the and these kids are young. I mean, yeah. they're young. They're kids. I mean, when you think about their age, and they've got a lot of angry, enormous men coming at them. Oh, yeah. And trying to hurt them, right? I mean, not trying to hurt them, but trying to hurt them, right? I mean, honestly, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a lot going on there. Yeah, I'm saying people are so uh, are very easy to say, hey, like, yell the quarterback for making a bad throw or 
making a bad decision or throwing an interception. But hey, you want to see real pressure? Stand behind off the line while you have a 265 pound guy coming at you at four four speed, yeah. and uh, see how fast uh, yeah. you're going to give up and retire. No, yep, absolutely. Nick, it's been fun. I appreciate you coming on. Um, tell everybody where they can find you. Uh, you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and uh, that's about it. I keep it uh, short and sweet. Uh, I'll be at, at the Slab Exchange, uh, underscore in between each word. Um, yeah, if uh, you guys ever have any questions or you want to reach out, by all means, uh, I'm, I have an open door. Message me, DM me. Uh, find me any which way you can. If you see me at a card show, come say hello. I'm always more than welcome to have a conversation about cards and collectibles. So uh, I am, again, uh, transitioned from investor to collector once again, and uh, I'm glad to be here and I'm not not going anywhere. So Ken, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I look forward to doing this again. Thank you, Nick. Good time.